From Gimlet, I'm Alex Bloomberg, and you are listening to the first episode of the brand new season of Startup. That deserves some music, right? Last season, I documented the story of starting my own company, Gimlet Media, a podcasting company, the company producing the podcast you're listening to right now. I don't have to tell you people this, right? Anyway, it was the most honest and transparent account I could make of something that happens every day in this country, but we rarely get to see firsthand, starting a business. And taking people inside the process of starting a business really struck a chord with our listeners. And so we decided to go big with the idea and follow other businesses that are trying to get off the ground. This season, we are following a whole new startup, which my co-host, Lisa Chow, has been following. Hey, Lisa. Hey, Alex. So you've been pretty busy? Yes. uh, We've been very, very busy for the last four months. We've been reporting on the company we're following this season through all of its ups and downs. And I want to say up front, we are still going to be bringing you updates on what is happening here at Gimlet. In fact, we have a little something at the very end of this podcast. But we are really not the only business out there with a compelling story. Definitely not. And we're really excited about the story we're going to be bringing you this season. But before we get there... To kick off this new season, we have to talk about something else first. We have to talk about love. Well, we're not going to really talk about love. We're going to talk about dating. And actually not dating exactly. Online dating, which sometimes seems as far away from love as you can get. We went to a bar. You know, I let, I let him kiss me and he put his hand on my butt when we were at the bar. And I was like, eh, okay, like, I'll allow it. Like, you're harmless enough. So we were walking to the subway, and we were holding hands, and he said, you know, your butt looks so bad in the outfit you're wearing that I was surprised when I touched it. It felt good. We went uh, back to my place, and then we started um, doing stuff. Fast forward, yada, yada, yada. Um, She stole money from my wallet. And we ended up having this massive argument about whether I was British or whether I was Iraqi, during which he held his hand up in front of my face, like literally inches from my, from my, from my like nose and stuff, and was like, stop, I'm talking now. So there's all these bad dates happening, but what's worse, just to get out on one of those dates takes a lot of time and effort. Even if you're using an app like Tinder, where all you have to do is swipe left or right on a picture. If you were to kind of calculate how many hours that you spend on Tinder versus how many hours you've been on dates. I don't want to do that, Ma. (laughs) (laughs) Don't make me. (laughs) Uh, How much swiping versus how much, like, good, like, kind of interesting conversation and stuff. Maybe a hundred to one. Online dating is inefficient and unpleasant. And the stats back this up. Online dating leads to fewer committed relationships than offline dating. Over 40% of women report being harassed through online dating sites. And people lie a lot. Over 80% of them, according to one study, lie about their height, weight, or age in their online dating profile. And sometimes they lie about a lot more than that. Which brings me to my last online dating story, the most memorable bad date story of them all. It's about a woman who met a guy on the dating app Hinge. They arranged to meet at a wine bar. The first thing out of his mouth was, 
I don't mean to be rude, but my phone is out on the table because my sister is going into labor soon and she lives in Boston. And so I'm on call. I may have to leave at a certain point. A little strange, but sort of sweet, right? He's super excited about being an uncle. Well, but then after the date, she went home and did what you do. I was like, oh, I really like this guy. I looked him up on Instagram. So I saw his picture, and then I saw a gorgeous woman that looked pregnant. I was like, oh my gosh, his sister's so pretty. Let me like click on her site for Instagram. And there's like a baby announcement, and there's a picture of this guy I went on a date with, with her, saying that their baby is about to be born like in a week from when we had our first date. <laughs> That's right. It wasn't his sister who was about to go into labor. It was his girlfriend who he lived with. That is crazy. I know. And this brings us to the company we'll be following this season, a company built to try to solve the problems in online dating, a company called Dating Ring. Imagine if, whenever you wanted a taxi, you had to browse through profiles, wait for a mutual match, chat with the taxi, and then finally have the taxi arrive only to look nothing like its photo. (laughs) This is how dating works now. This is Lauren Kay, one of the founders of Dating Ring. And she's speaking from one of the most coveted and exclusive stages in the startup world, the stage at Y Combinator, a startup accelerator in California. Y Combinator is where companies like Dropbox and Airbnb got their start. Only 2 or 3% of applicants make it to the stage where Lauren is standing now, making her pitch to 500 of the biggest investors in Silicon Valley. Dating should work like Uber. And with Dating Ring, it does. And unlike when I made my pitches to big-name Silicon Valley investors, Lauren is nailing it. There's no fumbling for words or figures, no awkward jokes or silences. And certainly, none of the investors are stopping her in the middle of her pitch to tell her she's doing it wrong. In fact, the investors in the audience are laughing and nodding along with what she's saying. She goes on to explain the idea that Dating Ring will help people stop wasting time, will weed out the creeps, and bring a personal touch to online dating. All while making money. And it works. 70% go on a second date. And our revenue has grown 60% each month for the last six months. And we are profitable. There is going to be a billion-dollar company that provides on-demand dates. And Dating Ring is going to be that company. Thank you. The promise of our idea was exciting. It was one of the reasons we wanted to follow this company for season two. The sheer audacity of their plan, that a company led by this woman, still in her early 20s, could upend an industry dominated by huge incumbent brands like Match.com, eHarmony, and OkCupid, all of which, by the way, were started by men. And that the way they would upend this industry was by focusing a huge part of their company on this. So, all right, I'm looking at your profile here. How's it been going? I've only been out with one person. Okay, and which one? Melissa. This is Emma Tesler, co-founder of Dating Ring, and a matchmaker. And matchmaking is Dating Ring's innovation, how they're going to make online dating more efficient, 
less creepy, and more personal. And right now, Emma's meeting with one of the company's clients, John Rousseau. She takes notes on her laptop as he tells her about himself. He likes to run in Central Park. He has a rescue cat. He's looking for a woman who wants kids. But other than that, there's really only a couple of things he considers deal breakers. Yeah, like someone that doesn't have a job or like does drugs or some right. crazy thing. No, I don't know. I mean, unemployed drug addicts. Someone has to guess that, like whether they're doing something behind my back that I shouldn't, that I uh, should be knowing about. Right. And what's happening in this room is another one of the reasons we wanted to follow Dating Ring. They're not just trying to figure out how to make shopping easier or come up with a more clever way to communicate online. They are taking on one of life's biggest questions: Who exactly is the person for me? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I'm a little undateable. You're not undateable. Oh, I promise you you're not. I don't know. I think I, when I go on a date, I give off, I emit or give off a certain vibe that, like, repels girls away from me. After John left the room, I sat with Emma to get her professional assessment. So I wrote, um, sponsors cats and dogs at the ASPCA, is way sweeter than he looks. Likes tall girls, athletic, smart, devoted, committed, wants a friend. He has a strong Staten Island accent, leaves his shirt unbuttoned really far. He wears a lot of hair gel. Them's my notes. What did you think about the fact? I mean, so you don't think he's undateable? No, definitely not. To be fair, I, you would be hard-pressed to find someone that I did think was undateable. I, I really do think there's a lid for every pot. Um... No, I definitely don't think he's undateable. I thought he was so sweet and endearing, and I felt like I could really picture the type of person that he should be with. Mm-hmm. I would think he would want someone who's really family-oriented, um, because like he's, he's sort of like an archetype, and I think if that's not familiar to you, it's off-putting, but maybe he looks like your dad or your uncle, and then it's really like, oh, he like feels like home. As long as we've been people, we've been trying to set up our nephews and nieces, our friends and colleagues, with a person that they could truly love. Dating Ring's plan is to take this ancient practice and scale it. And we are going to follow them as they try to do this. There have been high points, like that moment on stage at Y Combinator. And our revenue has grown 60% each month for the last six months. And we are profitable. But that moment... That was over a year ago. Here's something that was recorded much more recently, just a couple of months ago, an audio diary entry Emma recorded one evening on her phone. Lauren and I, uh, we, we talked. You know, we're in a bad position. We have no money. We are fighting. And yet we are embarking on this journey to become a huge tech company, which frankly at this point seems really, really stupid. And that journey from that high point on stage at Y Combinator to that low point recorded just a couple of months ago, that is the journey we'll be documenting this season. It's not all Cinderella like it was for you, Alex. (laughs) It didn't feel like Cinderella. But the other thing is that We'll also be documenting what happened after that low point from just a couple of months ago. Because that recording turned out to be a pretty pivotal moment. And like with me, Dating Ring is still in the middle of their journey. We have no idea how this will end. We do know, however, how it began. And that's what we'll be talking about after the break. Just what does it take to get onto that stage in Silicon Valley? 
there's a there's one thing you forgot. Oh, after a word from our sponsor. Nicely done. Thank you. Welcome back to Startup. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Lisa Chow. And this is the first episode of our brand new season, season two. And we are following a new company called Dating Ring. And their three founders, Lauren, Emma, and Katie. And that polished pitch you heard Lauren give before the break, it didn't start out that way. In many ways, that pitch was almost a year in the making. It goes back to when the company Dating Ring was formed. The idea for the company was conceived on a date. A date that Lauren's friend had set her up on. Lauren had been doing a lot of online dating at this time, but being set up by a friend, it felt different. Even though the actual date hadn't been that good, the fact that someone she knew had chosen the guy for her, it made the bad date somehow better, made the whole thing more special. She wanted to recreate that experience for all her single friends and their friends and their acquaintances. And so she sent around an email saying she was starting a dating service and she needed clients. I'd love to do this for a few months with 50 to 200 people. You know, all of those friends you have that you can't believe are single. Refer those my way with pics and a few lines about why they're great. Sound ridiculous? Because it is. So is love. At the time Lauren wrote this email, she was 23 years old. And already a seasoned entrepreneur, she had started her first business when she was still a teenager, her sophomore year of college. It was over her summer break. She was at home living with her parents, and she was looking to pick up some extra money as a babysitter. She posted an ad on Craigslist, and before she knew it, she had too many jobs to handle. So instead of doing what most people probably would have done in the same situation, certainly what I would have done in college, stopped responding to people's emails, ignoring the growing demand, Lauren decided to recruit more babysitters to meet that demand. And before long, at the age of 19, she found herself running a babysitting contracting service out of her parents' house in New Jersey. She put up a website and named her business Smart Sitting. It was just like... Smart sitters, smart family, smart network, like three different sections with a nice little stock photo of a baby reading a book. And babysitters would sign on to like a Google spreadsheet and report their hours every week. And then I would like make up invoices on Microsoft Word and send them to the families. And then the families would write a check and send it to my parents' house and my mom would put it in the bank account. By the end of the summer, the business was running so well that she kept it up throughout college. And when she graduated, Lauren ran Smart Sitting full-time and grew the network to 400 families, 200 sitters, a couple of employees, and yearly revenue in the six figures. And one thing I've noticed as I've gotten more into the startup and entrepreneurship world, a lot of successful founders have stories like this from when they were young. I think of it sort of as the business gene. They see an opportunity, and they can't really help but act on it. So Lauren was running Smart Sitting when she sent that dating email to her friends. And at that time, she had still not met Emma Tesler, the matchmaker we heard in the beginning, the woman who would become her co-founder. And Emma's story was quite different. Not only did she not start a business in college, she didn't graduate college. She dropped out her junior year. And at the time Lauren sent around her email, Emma was working as a sex ed teacher in Harlem. I loved my job and I loved the kids, um, but it was really depressing and it was really emotionally draining. And I had, you know, 13-year-old girls calling me at all hours of the night saying they were pregnant or they'd been raped or, you know, they needed to be taken to the emergency room. Um, And I was happy to be there for them, but I was a shell of a person. Emma says that at 24, she felt too young to be as burned out as she was. 
She couldn't stay in this job. But there were parts of it she really liked, helping people deal with relationships. She started to think about going back to school, maybe becoming a therapist, or getting into human sexuality research. And then it dawned on her. And so I thought, oh, I'll be a matchmaker. And I didn't know if that was a real job. But I told everyone, I told all my friends, I said, I'm going to be a matchmaker. And one of my friends said, oh, I know someone else who's thinking of doing the same thing. That was Lauren. Emma sent Lauren an email. They went back and forth a bazillion times about when and where to meet up. And they finally picked a place and time. We were both running, like, the exact amount of time late. And we were texting. And I was like, I'm seven minutes late. And Emma was like, I'm eight minutes late. And we walked up at the exact same moment. I think she sat down, like, a second before I did. But I saw her. And she came from running. And I never, ever exercise. And I was like, oh, shit, she's a runner. Like, we're never going to get along. (laughs) She's an amazing listener. I thought that she was so funny and really nice and really smart and really smart, really, really passionate, really self-aware and charming, very charming, extremely capable, one of the most like charismatic people, just like a really competent person, you know, like if she said she was going to do this, she was going to do it. I was just like in love with her. But I was very clear that I wasn't looking for a partner. When she said, I don't want a business partner, I was like, oh, fantastic. I'm not looking to be your business partner. I just want to be a matchmaker. Casual. Nothing serious. Emma started going with Lauren to the events Lauren was hosting for her single friends and acquaintances at bars in New York City. And it turned out Emma had a talent for pairing people in ways that they themselves didn't see. And their clients loved it. The original 50 people... Lauren had recruited in her email, had grown. They now had 300 signups. And the feedback was great. And then they started getting press. The New York Daily News called to do a profile on Lauren. The New York Times ran a feature about how they were putting a new spin on online dating. And a reality TV show recruited Dating Ring to find a date for its star, Senator McCain's daughter, Meghan McCain. And it was around this time that Emma came to Lauren and said something had changed. I remember she'd driven me home, and we were sitting in her parked car outside my apartment. And I I hadn't really planned on saying this, but I, I, I think I said something to the effect of, like, I know that when we first met, you said you didn't want a business partner, and I said I didn't want to be one, but I do. Just three months after they'd met, Emma was saying, I'm ready to commit. Lauren felt the same way. I was like, oh, I, I want to make her a partner because things were growing so much faster as soon as Emma stepped on board. So they decided to become business partners. But before they could really celebrate, they had to have one more awkward conversation about equity, how much of the business each of them will own. And I've had this conversation. You're literally putting a number on how valuable you are in the relationship. And the number Lauren first threw out, it felt pretty bad to Emma. From Lauren's perspective, she's the owner of the company, and Emma was an early employee. And early employees typically get half a percent, one percent of the company. But to Emma... I didn't know anything about startups, but I remember hearing, like, one percent, and I was like, what? Like, I go to all the meetings, like, it's a matchmaking company, I'm the matchmaker, like, I want more than one percent. It feels more than one percent mine. 
this was all complicated by the fact that it wasn't just a conversation between Emma and Lauren. There was actually a third person. Because of the attention and the growth Dating Ring was seeing, they realized they needed a tech person. So Lauren recruited a college friend, Katie Bambino, a programmer who had a very good job at the gaming company Zynga. Katie was psyched to join Dating Ring, but obviously she wanted ownership as well. So in August 2013, the three of them got on a Skype call to hash it out. Because it was such an important conversation, they recorded it. Recording stuff. It's a good idea. It's a test, a test, a test, a test, a test, a test. I just want this to be over with. This is the most stressed I've been. Me too. The main thing Lauren was stressed about was Emma. I really didn't want her to feel like I was taking advantage of her or not respecting her. It was so much power to have. And I was going into it trying not to let my opinion of her as a person and friend color it. So I was trying to make sure I didn't overvalue her because of how much I liked her and also that I didn't undervalue her because a lot of roles that she was up for are generally undervalued. So to help prepare for this conversation, Lauren found an equity calculation tool online. It asks about your skills and experience and tells you how much equity you should have based on your answers to some questions. Do you know any investors? Have you ever fundraised before? Um, Are you responsible for any of the technology? Can you code? Um, Have you ever been the CEO before? What is your actual position going into this? A whole host of other questions. The calculator spat out pretty large equity stakes for Lauren, who had the business savvy, and Katie, who had the tech background. But Emma's experience was harder to measure. My experience level in all of this was zero, right? I was like, I'm really good at convincing kids to use condoms. Incredibly convincing. Um, so, and, and, and so I, I faked it on some of it, and some of it I was like, I can't fake this. Like, zero coding, you know? Zero developer skills. Um, and I just, you know, because you hear in business, oh, you have to really sell yourself. And even though Lauren and I had become good friends at this point, I, I still thought, wow, I really have to sell myself to her. And I have to convince her of something that I, I don't know that I am. In the end, after doing all these calculations, Lauren came to the following numbers. Over 50% for her, a bit under 40% for Katie, and a bit under 10% for Emma. I was really nervous that when I presented Emma's equity offer to her and that it was multiples lower than Katie's or mine, that it would really hurt Emma and ruin our co-founder relationship. Yeah. So uh, what Katie and I were discussing was um, we were talking about uh, putting you at 8%. Um, is that wildly out of line with what you were thinking? Um, no, it is not wildly out of line with what I was thinking. Certainly not like the craziest number I've ever heard. Well, that makes me relieved because you know how, I mean, I think we've all been equally stressed about this, but I mean, for a reason, like I just have not wanted to put any number on anything you're doing. I just didn't want to feel it, have it feel out of the field because it's, hard for all of us to have different numbers. Almost every business, whether it's a corner grocery store or a Whole Foods, they all start sort of the same way. A couple people, an idea. But where you end up depends on what you do with that idea, how big you dream it can get. 
Lauren, Emma, and their new partner, Katie, had chosen to dream big. They had made this new partnership. They were going to go out and get investment. And in making that choice, they'd made other choices as well that weren't as obvious at the time. They'd chosen, for example, a new standard of success for themselves. And they'd chosen to make themselves vulnerable to the opinions of very powerful and persuasive people, people who could be quite harsh in their judgments and who could change the way they saw themselves. In the next episode of Startup, we go with Lauren, Emma, and Katie to Y Combinator. Or, as I like to call it, the Hogwarts Academy of Startups. And coming up, we have scenes from the whole upcoming season. And let me tell you, it gets very intense. That's after these words from our sponsor. Coming up on this season of Startup, highs, lows, and everything in between, we follow the founders to Y Combinator, where they learn what startup school is really like. If you're told like a million times what you should do in a horrible situation like drowning, but then you're drowning and you just are not going to remember at all what to do, like that's how YC felt. We talked to some of the people who backed Dating Ring. I mean, can you envision a successful exit? for a dating ring. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, if you heard of a service that if you go to it, you're going to find like your soulmate from it and the engine that powers it is a bunch of people who like actually looks at you and your personality and the things you say to them. Like who wouldn't want to pay money into a soulmate generator? And we're with them as they deal with stuff that as a male founder trying to raise investment, you don't come across that much. I was doing what I think a lot of women do, which is convincing myself that it wasn't a big deal. I was like, oh, it was my side boob. That's only side inappropriate. You know, like things like that. And we follow Dating Ring through an experience that a lot of startup founders face, a cash crunch. And I really just want to ask, like, do you believe in us? Are we, is this what it looks like when a company is failing and about to die? And basically, he said, you're in cockroach mode. The company only dies when you give up. That's all coming up on this season of Startup. To subscribe to the podcast, go to iTunes and subscribe to Startup or check out the Gimlet Media website, gimletmedia.com. Special thanks to MailChimp, a startup of its own. Started as a side project in 2001, now they send more than 600 million emails a day. MailChimp, they've been with Gimlet since the very beginning. The Startup website was designed in partnership with Athletics. Mark Phillips wrote and performed our theme song. Build Buildings wrote and performed our special ad music. The Reverend John Delore mixed the episode. He was also responsible for the brand new original scoring music we are featuring in season two of Startup. He wrote and performed it with his bandmates, Jordan Skinella, Sam Merrick, and Isamu McGregor. They said, you know what the name of their band is? No. Hotmoms.gov. .gov. We had invaluable editing and reporting help from Lisa Pollock and Caitlin Roberts. The episode was also edited by Caitlin Kenny and Fia Benin. You can follow us on Twitter at Podcast Startup or me at Lisa E. Chow. I'm Lisa Chow. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. We will talk to you soon on the next episode of Startup. Okay, so... It's me in the offices of Gimlet Media, and this is the little bonus segment I talked about. Um, I'm just going to be talking to people in the office for a second. 
um, a lot has changed here since the end of season one. I'm walking by the startup desk. Lisa Chow is working on a script right now. <laughs> Ignore me. I'm just narrating. I'm just what? I can't walk around with a microphone? Hold on. And here's the reply all table. They're in the middle of an edit. Uh, I don't think anyone's made that as a decision. Alex, you're recording, but nothing's going wrong. Stick around for a few hours. What are you trying to capture? I'm just trying to sort of give people a sense of what's actually going on here now. Um, oh, you know, one thing that people always ask me, you know, if they happen to hear the burnout episode, you were a central uh, player in the burnout episode. Uh-huh. What's the update? How's your gingivitis? <laughs> okay, turns out it wasn't gingivitis. It was um, basically I wasn't flossing right, and everybody's going to feel superior to me about that, but nobody's flossing right. Uh, but uh, in general, like everything is way, way better. Um, it's like I have personal hygiene. I think our entire production cycle is like a lot calmer, and we go. Tim's making a face at me because the last two nights were bad. But the last two nights were bad, and that was exceptional. Like, that was not typical, right? I hope so, man. Also, that's, that's the prayer. Tim is sitting right next to me, and Struzzi's sitting across from me. Like, we have a, a bigger, like, super experienced, super talented team around us. So, like, people take turns having a hard time, but there's, like, a lot of smart people helping. It's still very hard, but it's, like, fun hard, not bad hard. Yeah. It's like the right level of hard and not the terrifying I'm gonna die level of hard. Yeah. Yeah. Nice checking in with you guys. Yeah.